Greetings again, Alpha Seekers. I'm back sooner than I expected. Uh, it was a little bit brief earlier, so uh, found some other material I had forgotten that I wanted to uh, cover today. So uh, this is your uh, bonus edition. It's two for Thursday. So uh, basically I wrote up some clips that I got from The Week magazine dated actually June 26th, but, um, you know, how magazines are, this actually, I got it last weekend, so, because uh, I get it online, so I suppose if it's the print edition, it would show up earlier, anyway, uh, always some interesting tidbits in there, you know, they give these little synopses of articles that are too long to read, for the modern mentality, at least. Um, and there's too much information out there, so I get it. It's kind of like Reader's Digest used to be, for those of you who are old enough to remember it uh, in its heyday. So, uh, Financial Times report, investors paid more than $230 billion in performance fees to private equity funds over the last 10 years. Uh, over the period... Uh, 22 fund managers amassed personal fortunes of more than $2 billion. So that's, you know, it's good to be the private equity hedge fund guy and gal. So, uh, you know, actually, we can't really promote, as it turns out, our, uh, our venture's next capital operation. I kind of got a little slap on the... the the virtual wrists from our legal department about that. So I have to lay off of that. Sorry. But, um, you know, we're trying to make that, honestly. We're trying to make a little bit of a fee and a little percentage. But, you know, on a small scale. So, um, and you got to remember, these guys don't make money really much, at least, unless you make money. So... Keep that in mind. But, you know, full disclosure. Okay, next item. The Motley Fool reports half of retirees are on short of cash. A government study found that 49% of retirees run out of money to maintain their lifestyle within five years, according to a gentleman named Dave Kovaleski in themotleyfool.com. Uh and then there's some confusing statistics here, which I don't understand myself. Uh, but, you know, basically they're trying to say that uh, you're better off having all your debts paid off in retirement, which makes sense. You know, I want to start using them credit cards. And so that's something to keep in mind. And, you know... That's why I think it does make some sense, certainly to keep uh, certainly some significant proportion of your money in stocks. Um, Dividend-paying stocks are good ones these days because you get the dividends and you get the capital appreciation. So companies like Verizon, AT&T, which are basically utilities, although they're not that regulated anymore. They don't have much price regulation, that's for sure. Cable companies, Comcast, yeah, it out So uh, those are good. I think those are better than bonds these days. I mean, the Fed's going to keep them, you know, 
the Fed put's going to keep them from uh, dipping too deep for any long-term horizon. You know, we saw stocks go down 30% there in March, but then we saw them come basically right back. So you can't be a panicky person. You can't sell at the bottom. But um, if you're hanging in there and, you know, let your money managers do their job, then nobody's going to be selling at the bottom. And you'll still get a dividend for most of these folks. In fact, percentage-wise, your dividend will look even better, you know, because the stock price gets lower. So, um, another item, Brett Ahrens from Market Watch, which I believe is a Wall Street Journal outlet. Be careful before you put your retirement money to work in private equity. Um, Labor Department supposedly opening the door to including private equity f- funds in 401k plans. Uh, private equity, of course, is very happy about that. And, um, you know, a lot of people think, well, these big guys are making big money on these private equity funds. But as we just saw in our previous item, you know, the private equity funds make a pretty big buck. And they don't always make money. Uh, they're tough people to work for. I know people who've worked in companies who are run by private equity. And uh, they're tough, green eye shade, you know, uh, just they have no soul. Which if you're one of the companies they acquire, that's a tough day at the office for you. Assuming you're still in the office because they tend to get rid of a lot of people who make a lot of money. Uh, But for the investors, you know, they pay themselves out a big dividend before they do anything else. They load the company up with debt and, you know... Maybe it goes bluey, but they don't really care. I don't find that to be the very most admirable part of capitalism myself. But, uh, you know, if you're an investor and you just want the number. Now, the other point I make here, this is a little bit of commentary on the article myself. Um, You know, some private equity has been making money on companies that uh, and this most, you know, venture capital, private equity, these terms are kind of fungible in my experience. Or maybe I just don't understand the difference that well. But, um, you know, a lot of companies stay private for a long time. And then the IPO, you know, where they used to pop like rockets on uh, IPO day. Now they keep them private for a long time. So they do this round, that round, and... By the time they get to the public markets, they've pretty much been run up to a overvalued number as it is, and then they dump it off on the on the private or the on the public market, and sometimes they actually go down. I remember you could have bought Facebook for twenty five bucks a share the day of the IPO, which was widely looked at as a disastrous IPO. Uh, but you know, if you had bought it, boy, you got in lower than the lower than the opening price by substantially lower but i thought that was so weird i didn't jump on it i thought maybe it was something people knew that i didn't and that's another one where i i didn't have enough uh courage of my convictions so uh what else yeah 
Now, this sounds like it should be in a healthcare blog, but I don't have a healthcare blog, so I thought I'd pass along. Blood type, apparently, according to the New York Times, uh, makes a difference in terms of who gets COVID and how bad uh, they get it. Uh, scientists in Europe found evidence that variations of two locations on the human genome were linked to an increased risk of respiratory failure in people infected with COVID. Uh, one of those uh, those parts of the genome is also the part that determines blood type. So uh, this was a study of 1,600 patients in Italy and Spain, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, but it does confirm findings by Chinese scientists who say that uh, type A blood is more vulnerable uh, and people with type A get hit harder than people with, say, type O. Uh, people with type O are between 9 and 18% less likely to have tested positive for the disease in the first place, according to 23andMe. So, um, you know, I think I have type O blood, so that's probably one thing I got going for me. Um, and I don't know, I don't even know why people have different blood types. And it's a mystery uh, exactly how these blood types affect the virus. Uh, it's a co-location thing, you know, with this gene. It may be that the, uh, the genetic difference, because it's where the uh, immune system code is, it may be that blood type and the robustness of the immune system are connected because a lot of people actually, their immune system essentially kills them because you get what's called a cytokine storm, which is your immune system overreacting to the virus and clogging up all your, uh, your lungs and, you know, essentially it's like drowning, which is not, not a fun way to go. Of course, I can't, not only can't I swim, I can't even float, so, you know... I have to avoid bodies of water, and now I have to avoid air. So you're, they're taking more and more of the ecosphere away from me. Um, okay, here's some quotes. I love quotes. So this one is from a Canadian health official, uh, Dr. Barney Henry, quoted in the New York Times as saying, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. Now, that sounds something like you would hear from a justice Democrat or something, but and it, it struck me as kind of odd because uh, Canada has the Medicare for all, you know. So I'm not sure exactly what he means there. He may just mean that, you know, even though Canada is widely viewed as uh, far more just of a society and equal of a society than America, and with some good reason, um, there's still disparities in income, I think, so, you know. Okay, another quote. Here's one from Oscar Wilde. Uh, Man is least himself when he speaks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell the truth. So we all have masks now, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but we may all be speaking the truth to each other. My wife can still tell... When I'm, like, laughing at her without laughing, you know, when I'm, like, got a smirk on my face, I think she sees 
the eyes are the window to the soul, so I think she looks through the window and evidently Irish eyes are smiling sometimes even though I wear a mask around the house because I'm, you know, I'm old and I got COPD. But anyway, um, here's one from Amelia Earhart, quoted in goodreads.com. She said, the most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. Very well spoken, but you know what happened to her. Uh, But still, it's a nice quote uh, for a motivational poster, especially for younger people. Maybe you don't know what happened to Amelia Earhart. Uh, But up until that last part, she was actually doing quite well, you know. Now, here's one that's very timely. This is from our our short little friend, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, quoted in thebulwark.com. And uh, he said that in politics, stupidity is not a handicap. <laughs> and I think we'd all probably agree on that. Uh, no matter which way the election goes, I don't think either one of these candidates was a Rhodes Scholar, you know. Although we've had our Rhodes Scholars, and that didn't work out so well. So, what are you going to do? Now, here's one from Errol Flynn. Uh, my problem lies in reconciling my gross habits with my net income. And boy, can I relate to that. Uh, that's why I'm still working. That's why you're listening to me, because, you know, I'm not single. Here's a, and we make decisions as a couple. So uh, here's a poll watch item. Just 63% of adults say they are extremely or very proud to be an American, which is the lowest total registered since 2001. Uh, of course, there was a surge in patriotism after 9-11, so... of Republicans are extremely proud, which is down from 76, while just 24% of Democrats are extremely proud to be Americans. So, what does that tell you? I don't know. I have decided to declare myself apolitical, by the way. So, I am not going to be talking about politics anymore, unless it has something to do, of course, with Mr. Market or uh, alpha investments. So anything I say political is only related to the uh, impact that has on our alpha-seeking behavior, okay? So that's a new disclaimer. All right, 20% of adults are happy with how things are going in this country. Um... Well, you know, that I can relate to. Of course, people have different perspectives and values, so they can be proud or not proud for various reasons, or they can be happy or not happy. But it's hard to think of anybody being terribly happy with the situation as it stands, you know. I can't think of anybody who would really say, yeah, this is great, this virus thing, and, you know. So, uh Not a lot of happy people there, but I want you to be one of them. So cheer up. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow, and uh, we'll go from there. Now, uh, the other thing I made note of here is that, you know, the same set of facts can inspire either pride or shame, depending on who you are and, and, and how you react, you know. I won't go into any examples, 
but uh, people could be one one person could be proud of America for fact set A, and the other person could be ashamed of of, of America for fact set A. So, especially with different generations involved. So, uh, but that's an interesting perspective. I think uh, I think some of the folks who like to make mischief in the United States, like our Chinese and Russian friends, and I use that term sarcastically, are probably you know, succeeding beyond their wildest dreams when they see metrics like that, they've got to be giving their their agitprop people a bonus in rubles or wine or whatever. And I think, actually, the Russians are probably more culpable in that. They've been trying to do that since 1917, at least. And they're good at it, so... Uh, you know, we'll soldier on and see what happens. But uh, and is that bullish, bearish, and different? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it really has that much impact short term, certainly on the market. You know, um, economic behavior versus political behavior seems to be fairly disconnected. You know, you don't see the real. Excuse me. You know, I'm boring myself. Isn't that terrible? Uh, you don't see the linkage. Actually, it's kind of late, so that's my excuse for yawning in the middle of my podcast. But um, anyway, I think that is a good uh, hint that it's time to sign off. You know, remember working overtime here, okay? Um, almost uh, not quite midnight, but it's a late night edition, and I'm not as young as I used to be, so. Uh, I think you've gotten enough out of me for today. At least I, <laughs> the old clock on the wall says uh, time for Terry to sign off. So uh, live long, prosper, uh, and we will talk at you probably only once tomorrow. Bye-bye.